Welcome, everybody. Welcome to here, those of you that have come here, and for those of you that are uh, viewing this online. There are several hundred people actually here to see uh, Long for Tomato. So I just want to welcome you and have everyone feel welcomed and uh, um, appreciated for being here. My name's Tuere Salah. I'm a guiding teacher at Seattle Insight. And um, I am here both to welcome you, give you the logistics, and introduce Alangpo to some of you. <laughs> Most of us here, we don't need an introduction. But just a couple of logistics. Uh, if you need to use a restroom, if you go straight out into the lobby where you came in, you can um, ask one of the volunteers there and they'll show you the directions of how to get there. Likewise, if we need to get out because of a fire, I just want to make sure, just go straight out the doors and straight out in the street and straight back. No big deal. Uh, I want to thank, it took a lot of volunteers to make this happen from Seattle Inside and other places. And so I really want to give a thank you for all of those volunteers and for their efforts to put this on. Uh, it's very special and we're very honored this is quite an auspicious day, both that Langpo is here and that it's sunny outside. <laughs> so, I mean, what else is there? So, we're so appreciative for the volunteers and for all of you being here. Um, lastly, Donna uh, is the polyword for generosity and any offering that you can do to generously help continue the Dhamma to be uh, brought both to Seattle through Seattle Insight and Donna that's offered on behalf of Langpo to um, Abayagiri Monastery. So anything that you can offer help with uh, will be greatly appreciated. These are difficult times for uh, nonprofits and so any help you can give is greatly appreciated. So now I want to introduce Lungpo. I have fretted over this for a month now, now that I'm here having to do it. <laughs> I'm still fretting. <laughs> but the reason being is because for many of us in here, Lungpo's teaching has been a strong guide for our continued practice in the Dhamma. And we don't need any, I don't need to say anything to introduce him to you. But there may be some people here or some people online who do not know who this uh, being is. And so that I want to give some introduction for. And uh, just, some basic, just some basic little things is that he ordained in 1967. I was 10 years old. And over the next 40 years, he supported monasteries in Thailand, in England, in the United States, um, all over the world, and uh, offered teachings all over the world. And I was a young girl growing up in the projects in Seattle. I didn't have any understanding that one day our paths would eventually cross. But when I came to Seattle Insight, I found a book called uh, The Four Noble Truths. And I actually brought that book with me to keep me steady. I read this book, and this is the first time I ever had an understanding about suffering, 
difficulty. Uh, Lung Po's teaching is so clear, it's so simple. The humor, the laughter, just the capacity to take a very complicated, nuanced practice and make it as easy for someone that's a lay practitioner to understand as a monastic could understand. That is, a, that is deep wisdom. And so the, the gift that Long Po brings to us today is wisdom. And that's, the, that's what I'm so happy that right now in this day and age in Seattle, we get to partake of that wisdom. And so, I give you Lung Po. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Bhutang dhammang sankhang namasami So it gives me great pleasure to be here in Seattle again. And uh, Seattle's changed considerably since I was born here 88 years ago. And, and my memories of Seattle and the present situation I see, you know, I keep trying to identify places and, and uh, brings back memories and so much has changed in so many different ways. And that's life, the way life moves from infancy to old age. And the Buddha, uh, emphasis on Buddha Dhamma, Buddhist teaching is mindfulness. And this is a word that's quite popular these days with people everywhere. They're interested in, in mindful practices. There's all kinds of teachers teaching mindfulness. And what do we mean by that, really? Because it's a common enough English word. But usually, it, I mean, we mean like be mindful of objects when you're crossing the street. Be mindful of oncoming traffic or be mindful when you're washing the dishes or sewing material on a machine or mindful of relationships. Mindful while listening to music or on and on like that. So the senses are what we identify with, what we create a a, a separate self-image, the, the view, 
that I am this body. I am my, what I see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think this is my real world. The real world is what is the objects of my senses, my sense organs, my body. This is the real world. But then we question ourselves, is it really reality? Is this world that we perceive through sense organs, is it something real or trustworthy? And of course the Buddha was emphasizing that the nature of all phenomena is impermanent, it's changing. So from, in, from childhood to 88 years, you know, the changes physically are obvious uh, in Seattle and in the, this particular form, this body. And that's the way it is, the Buddha pointed out, to the way conditioned phenomena is. It's not something you can trust, that you can, when you identify with conditions, with phenomena, with what you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, then you're going to always feel disappointed or fear. There's a lot of fear, anxiety, worry, because things change and they don't always change the way we would like them to. So it's, uh, so mindfulness is we can, you know, we can restrict it to just objects or what we see and hear and so forth. Or is it much more than that? So in Buddha teaching, the emphasis on conscious awareness, and in uh, a teaching in the Dhammapada, one of my favorite verses in the Dhammapada is, apamado amatapadang pamado machunopadang, that's the Pali version, which means mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the way to death. So taking just these two phrases, you know, mindfulness is the, what is the deathless? What doesn't die? Well, the body dies, vision changes, hearing changes, sense of smell can go, memories can fade. The, thing, the objects of senses are changing all the time. The planetary conditions are changing, climate change, pandemics, on and on like that. These are part of the changing process of the conditioned realm that we strongly identify with. And of course, it's rather frightening. So when you listen to the radio or television, mass media, there's a lot to fear because the predictions for the future can be rather ominous and threatening to what we identify with. If I'm this physical body, then old age is a threat, you know, because consciousness doesn't get old, consciousness doesn't age, bodies age. But, I, but out of ignorance, out of not contemplating, reflecting on the way things are, we, we identify with the impermanent, unsatisfactory conditions 
that we're actually programmed by when by our parents, by our society, by our culture, by our religion. Like none of us were born with an ego, a sense of personal identity with the body. So like a newborn baby is a naturally conscious human form. And then it gets told later on when that it's a boy or girl, that it's black or white, that it's American or Thai or whatever, that we acquire these identities after we're born. So these identities can be good or bad or not right or they're all assumptions, perceptions. They're not based on Dhamma, on ultimate reality. So when we take refuge in Dhamma, because part of the, in the Theravada tradition, they, uh, you know, the custom is to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. So then coming from a different, from a Christian tradition, you know, when I started taking refuge in, in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, you know, I could do it ceremonially, which was all that was required in Thailand. Just repeat the words. Uh, and Buddha, I kind of, you know, reflected on the sage Gautama, the Buddha of ancient India. And then Dhamma is the ultimate reality or truth. And Sangha is usually referred to as, as monks or nuns. So these are the kind of perceptions that I had when I took refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. But in, then in, through meditation, through reflecting, through investigating the realities of experience, you realize that Buddha is, is mindfulness, is awareness, Conscious awareness, knowing the way it is in the present moment. So Buddha is no longer taking refuge in the memory of, a, of an ancient sage. Because that's just a memory, you know, that's not really Buddha. That's a memory of somebody else. So when we take refuge, do we, do we take refuge in, in the memory or is Refuge in Buddha is something much more profound, much more practical than what I had assumed when I first took refuge. So in, when I went to live with Lung Pa Cha in Newborn, that was in 1967, his, his main teaching was using the Buddha's name as a kind of mantra, Bhutto. And then in Thai, it's translated as the knowing. One who knows the way it is. So this is, you know, so that in that first year training with Ajahn Chah, I found that suddenly the word Buddha meant much more to me because I was learning, trying to learn the Thai language trying to fit into a culture that, that was total mystery to me, 
adjusting to monastic life as they as we lived it in uh, Wat Bapong at that time, and Lumpur Cha was emphasizing be aware of the way it is. So even without being able to understand Thai, you know, just just that simple teaching itself, awareness of the way it is, I actually benefited that first year enormously just by being aware of what you're feeling and in the present moment is like this. The way it is can only be this way at this time it's like this. So what any of you are feeling at this moment whether you're interested or uninterested, bored or, or fascinated or whatever, it's the way it is. It's like this. And this way of training yourself to be the, the of witness, the observer, rather than the one that's caught in the conditions, the, the emotions, the thoughts, the memories that arise in the present. That's a very simple teaching because even, you know, in, a, in my particular situation at that time, being a, a foreigner in a, in a culture I didn't understand very well and living, to, living within a very rigid structure of precepts and moral precepts, this was, you know, the emotional conditions I was experiencing were all over the place. So I began to notice just frustration is like this, or anxiety, or disagreement, or anger, fear, jealousy, all these human emotions that would arise were the way they are. And it's so you're, it's a way of letting go of them of being the puto, the witness of the way it is in the present moment. So in Theravada pujas, morning and evening pujas, they, we chant the, uh, the uh, Buddha is uh, aware, uh, Dhamma is apparent here and now, Santiti Kodama. So I would ask myself, what is apparent here and now? If you know, because what I see changes all the time, even though you know it's apparent here and now, uh, you know. So and timeless, a kalika dhamma, time. What is timelessness? And what is apparent here and now, without going sending your sensory organs out to their objects, is conscious awareness. It's apparent here and now. So if I ask any one of you, are you conscious, you're going to have to say, yes, you are, because you know, each one of you at this very moment know you're conscious. But then we start thinking about it. Am I really conscious or what is consciousness or is that all there is, you know? So the thought process is a created pattern of habits that we acquire. So investigating thought is very important to see, to contemplate, to reflect on thinking without thinking, 
being aware of thoughts as they arise and cease in consciousness and mindfulness. So even Bhutto, Buddha, the name of the Buddha, arises and ceases. So in intentionally thinking to myself, Buddha, what remains, what is there before I think Buddha and after I have thought Buddha is awareness, conscious awareness. It's silent, it's peaceful. It's here and now. It's not created by culture, by language, by perception. It's not a perception. It's the reality that the Buddha pointed to in his teachings. The thing that attracted, attracts most of us to Buddha Dhamma at this time in countries like this that really knew nothing about Buddhism before they were totally uninterested in it. It's basically, it's, it's a directional signs to awareness, to, uh, to, un, to understanding the way it is, not to tell you how it is or how it should be. So in modern life, liberal thinking oftentimes tells us how things should be. So we can all create, you know, a, a, an ideal realm of superlatives of how society should be, the world should be, America should be, a husband should be, a wife should be, all these should be's are ideals we create with language. They're beautiful, like democracy and freedom are beautiful ideals. But is that the way it is in terms of the reality of here and now? And this is like investigating. So an important part of vipassana meditation is investigating. Sati sampachanya, or mindfulness and clear comprehension. So that's not analyzing. Investigating doesn't mean thinking or analyzing whether it's right or wrong, good or bad, true or false. It's noticing that the simple reality that we can all witness to the impermanence of what we're experiencing through the senses. Like just the time of day, it's constantly changing. The seasons of the year, the temperature, the things around us. What we hear changes. You know, so we, we live in, you know, monks, we try to live in places that are quiet and silent. Try to not live in cities because they're too noisy. But even in the forest monasteries of Thailand, um, Thai forests are very noisy. So there's a lot of insect sounds, birds, animals. And then you, you think when you want silence, you, you want the birds to stop singing, the peacocks to, and um, the last monastery I lived in, they had these peacocks that made this terrible sound right outside my kuti. 
and uh, you know, I'd find the wish that they weren't there. <laughs> but then I could observe that. The desire to get rid of the peacocks was like this. So beginning to, to recognize the silence that is here and now, whether you're in the middle of Seattle or a work site or in a quiet forest situation, doesn't, you know, the silence is reality itself. Consciousness is silent and peaceful. So it's beginning to trust this silence. Learning to trust it. Because, it, it, you know, it's not about believing in silence or believing, it's not about accept, you know, accepting the teaching on belief, but what I'm saying this afternoon is an encouragement to investigate for yourself. Because most religions depend on belief systems. You're told what to believe, what's right and wrong, how things should be, what God wants, and so forth. And so, you, you know, you get a lot of information from outside, from parents, from teachers, from religious instruction. And sometimes it's very good, you know, it's not, not about it's wrong. But it is acquired knowledge. It's not insight. It's not wisdom. And so the thing that attracted me to Buddha Dhamma, Buddhism, was that it didn't ask you to believe in anything. So, you know, th this I could accept because I found it very difficult to believe what I'm just to believe because somebody said this is right or this is what God wants or, or even Buddhists can talk about how much you should believe in. But when you investigate the teaching themselves, like the Four Noble, Four Noble Truths, you don't have to believe in the Four Noble Truths. You know, it's ridiculous to believe in suffering as a Noble Truth. The Buddha didn't intend it to be something you grasp and believe in, because that would be depressing. Depressing is and everything suffering. And that's sometimes how Westerners translate the first noble truth, is that Buddha believes everything is suffering, so you, you should believe that too. So it's, that's a kind of depressing nihilistic attitude toward life. Well, why didn't the Buddha, after his enlightenment, why didn't he teach about universal love and compassion? Why did he teach his five disciples, five students, the, first noble, the Four Noble Truths? If he was enlightened, why didn't he teach something inspiring? So I assume the five disciples were already inspired enough. They'd been through, they'd done a lot of samadhi concentration practices, had developed refined states of mind that they could 
sustained for periods of time. So there, it wasn't that they lacked inspiration. They had certain kind of refinement, but still that refinement was suffering. It didn't, it wasn't lasting. You couldn't, it wasn't sustainable. So what did the Buddha find out? To, to be able to call himself the Buddha was all conditions are impermanent and Dhamma, what's apparent here and now is not personal. That what you are is not what you think or not what you've been told you are. So then what, what am I if I'm not Ajahn Sumato and you know the, all the identities I've acquired? Because that comes and goes and fades, changes according to situations. So, you know, what am I really? And this is a good question to ask yourself. If you're not the body, if you're not your memories, your your senses, if you're not really this limited, limited condition that we strongly identify with. Because, you know, as you get old, the limitation gets more limited than ever. And if I'm identified with, a, with an old body, then it's going to be suffering for me because it's, it's increasingly more limited, can't see very well, have to wear hearing aids, can't walk very independently for very long. So if that's what I am, that would be suffering because, you know, on an ego level, personality-wise, I don't want to get old. You know, I have no desire as a person, a personality, an ego, to get old. But the body, whether I personally want it to stay young and not grow old, does what it has to do is to grow old and die. And that's the way it is. So then, who am I if I'm not these conditions? Because there's still consciousness which doesn't get old. Consciousness doesn't age. So ask old people. It's interesting to ask elderly folk. You know, they the minds can still, they still have youthful memories, ambitions, desires, thoughts. And then the body packs up, memories not so accurate, and senses fade. And you, you know, personally you don't want this. But is that my refuge in the sensory conditions I'm experiencing in the physical body, or what is really trustworthy is awareness, conscious awareness. We call that the gate to the deathless. Apamado amatabadang, mindfulness is the way to the deathless. What is the deathless? You know, so on the ego level, 
on the sense of being a separate individual body in a vast universe. It's rather terrifying when you think of it. You know, these, these human forms, whether they're young or old, are quite fragile, easily damaged, yet in diseases like COVID-19 and on and on like that, subject to temperatures and economic reforms and revolutions and wars and, and natural disasters and on and on like that. You know, when you look up at the sky at night, on a clear night, you know, it's rather awesome to look up in this vast space where you see the moon and the stars and they seem so far away from where you stand as a limited form. So then I ask you a question, is consciousness limited to the form? Is consciousness inside your brain or inside your body? Is my consciousness separate from your consciousness at this very moment? So we each have individual personalized consciousnesses? Or is consciousness, are we in consciousness, the same consciousness? So this is a complete turnabout from the way we've been culturally programmed where the material world is our reality and we see everything in a very personal way my consciousness my body what I think how I feel is so important but what do we share that is unitive that unifies all the sun moon and stars all beings, all creation. So then my insight is it's consciousness. Consciousness has no limit, no boundary. It doesn't begin and end, arise and cease. Senses, sense consciousness, because that's what we identify with, that changes, because senses are very undependable, uncertain, unstable. So just to encourage you to, to reflect, is consciousness, it's perfect. It's whole and complete, it includes everything. Every, all creatures, all humans, all planets, stars, sun and moon, space itself. And what we can witness within these limited forms Is consciousness that we must recognize through awareness, not believe in or create, but it begins to make much more sense that without consciousness, how could there be space? How could there be earth, fire, water, and air? How could there be planets, sun, the sun and moon and stars? How could these things exist if there was no consciousness? Because even space, you can't measure space. You know, so 
space has no no boundary. It seems to, you know, in terms of perceiving space, it goes endlessly on into where you can't see beyond it. But if there was no consciousness, there would how could space manifest or forms manifest in space? Try to think of forms manifesting without space is an impossible, absurd project. Space is here and now, too. We can witness it. We can perceive it just through sight. Space has no quality other than spaciousness. Whether it's big or small is not an issue because everything's in it. Those stars out in space the sun and moon are in space. And where is space? Where can it be? Is consciousness of space within this limited form that we identify with, we begin to recognize this gift of our human birth, is we can reflect in this way that we can actually, and the Buddhist teachings are very direct, clear, directional signs to this kind of insight. So when you, you're, you change from seeing yourself within the limitations of forms, where does hatred come or anger? It arises and ceases according to conditions. Fear. You know, look at nature around us. Where I live in England, outside my dwelling, there's a garden and all these squirrels and birds spend the whole day looking for food, but always with fear because, you know, they could be attacked by a cat or a dog and, and uh, everything's feeding on everyone else. You know, this whole... Uh, animal kingdom is about survival by eating. You have to eat to support a human body. So the body is, is just made out of food. And yet that's what, what vanity we're so vain about how we look. But when you start thinking of your body as just nothing but food because animals, tigers, uh, might enjoy eating one's body, it's food. And we have to eat to sustain the health and welfare of a human body. Is this what we identify with? You know, what we, we've conditioned, programmed to believe that I am this limited form. So all the problems that we create in our minds around the way it is, the way we would like it to be, the way it should be according to our ideals, we suffer a lot because life isn't fair or just. You know, it's it dependent on other conditions, on change that we have no control over. Animals still need to eat and they have to eat each other and on and on like this. We can become vegetarians and so forth 
but we're still having to survive on plants, living forms that we depend on. If we stop eating, we die. The form, the body can't sustain life without food. So what is perfect? When we talk about perfection, wholeness, unity, universal love, can only be consciousness, because that's what is apparent here and now. But when we ignore that, when we identify with the changing conditions that are subject to other conditions, you know, we're, we're going to constantly be in a state of anxiety, worry, fear. And anxiety and fear, worry about the future, guilt about the past. These are common problems for modern human beings. We create them out of this wrong identification with phenomena. And we're trying to sort it out so we don't have fear and worry and yet solve our anxiety problems or so forth. So we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's wrong with us as personal identities because the ideal is to be fearless to be full of love and kindness and compassion. That's ideal, an ideal person, like a, a Buddhist monk, a bhikkhu. Remember, idealizing the monastic form should be full of metta, a kind of loving kindness and compassion, not jealousy or fear or anything like that. So when I first visited Thailand, I remember seeing monks as traveling from Penang to Bangkok on a train, and I saw some monks on the train, and I thought, they're probably fearless, never get angry, full of loving kindness. Projected this ideal on Buddhist monks that I had never met. Then ordaining as a Buddhist monk, living within a Sangha. Then you realize that the Sangha, the Buddhist Sangha, Buddhist monastic Sangha is dealing with fear and jealousy and worry and anxiety and guilt. So this is part of the human conditioning, the programming of cultural conditioning, cult, uh, social conditioning. It's all, you know, becomes fraught with, you know, ideals of how it should be or how we would like it to be or fear that it's not going to ever develop. When you listen to the news of the day, you, you know, you kind of, like American politics is, is not ideal. It's not about ideas, it's about power and winning elections and, and making money. That's not the ideal of democracy or freedom. 
But that's the way it is without wisdom, without universal love, without the understanding of your true nature. You, you identify with positions, social positions, powerful positions, being very wealthy, being a billionaire, being a celebrity. You know, these are ways that the ego just loves to have titles and identities, superlatives, to get degrees from important universities. And on and on like that, the ego loves to, to be acknowledged and to be admired and respected. What the ego doesn't like is to be despised and rejected and criticized. So in meditation, I remember when, when I went to live in, in England, where I was uh, you know, I, I became a head of a sangha. You know, I, I was very, uh, I began to see my personal weakness was I didn't, I couldn't take criticism. You know, I just feel very offended or resentful or reactive to people's criticism. Where I like the praise, you know, when people say, you're really a good monk, and, and uh, I quite like that, as an ego likes that. But is that ego really me? Because I can be aware of the ego. There's awareness of the resentment of being criticized. So I really took it at heart to, to get people to criticize me, just so I could witness my, my reactions about being offended or, or, re, or too reactive or angry or, or guilt-ridden or whatever. And then the puto, the puto mantra is a way of witnessing this. What you don't like, what you don't want. It's like this. And when people praise and so forth, then it's like this. So it's like this. Is a, is a, is a, the English words, because it's not critical, it's not saying anything whether you're right or wrong, but this moment for each one of us can only be the way it is right now, it's like this. And when you begin to, to trust this, then you can roll with the flow, with the praise or the blame that, that society directs at you personally, or at your religion, or at your sangha, or at your monastery, or at your family. 
So dukkha is the first noble truth or suffering. The insight into it is to understand it. There's three aspects to each truth. And the first aspect is to understand suffering. And to understand it is, you know, we understand what it means. So we can look up the Pali word dukkha and you get understand in, in English or in any, any other language you have an appropriate word for suffering. And we can all admit that life has a lot of suffering. But we don't want suffering. You know, suffering is something nobody wants. But it's to be understood. And to understand something, you have to accept it. It's like this, suffering, being offended feels like this. And as you train yourself to just open to suffering, to the emotional reaction to being offended is like this, you see the end of being offended, it doesn't last, it ceases. So the cessation of suffering is very immediate in conscious awareness. Because you still, like even in the scriptures, the Buddha, the historical Buddha, got old, got sick and died and got blamed for all kinds of things and very difficult periods with monks and they established this Vinaya discipline due to all the mistakes and irritating habits of various bhikkhus and bhikkhunis and so forth. So that, you know, it wasn't like after Gautama the Buddha was enlightened, he just lived in a, in a state of bliss and didn't have to deal with any of the worldly conditions. He, he operated right into the world by teaching, by training. Then the second noble truth is the causes of suffering. So suffering is not an absolute. The causes of suffering is this ignorant attachment to desire. So then what is desire? And in English so much, you know, in terms of my use of that word, usually he meant like desire, sexual desire or desire for things is usually uh, kind of uh, pejorative word. If you say someone's full of desires, that's kind of insulting them. But the, then they, in the Second Noble Truth, they have three kinds of desire. Desire, sensual desire for objects of the senses. Desire for becoming, getting something you don't have. And that's very important for meditators to observe the desire to get samadhi, desire to become enlightened, desire to become an arahant or a stream enterer. You know, you see, so much of us started with that desire to want to get enlightened. When I ordained, I felt, you know, I'm unenlightened, I need, there's, I've got so many faults and flaws as a person, I need to get rid of all these faults and flaws. 
and get something I don't have, which is samadhi, according to how I would interpret Buddhist teaching, and uh, want to become a stream enterer, a sotapanna, and on and on like that. So I began to witness my desire, my monastic desires were quite good ones. They weren't evil desires or bad, but they were still the ego operating me as a separate individual who's flawed, who wants to become unflawed, wants to become enlightened, wants to get something I didn't have, I felt I didn't have. And the third kind of desire is desire to get rid of what you don't like. And so many of the teaching is around getting rid of greed, anger, and delusion. Getting rid of fear and jealousy. Getting rid of anxiety and worry. So, you know, I found this listening to this desire, because I had a desire to get rid of greed, desire to get rid of anger, get rid of delusion. And they seem like what you ordain for, to get rid of these defilements. Like you become a Buddhist monk and live a brahmacharya, the celibate life, to get rid of all defilements. Become an alms mendicant to get rid of greed. Because I saw, you know, greed was seen as some kind of personal desire, and anger was, you know, a good monk uh, doesn't get angry, he's just full of loving kindness, the ideal monk. So this, this second noble truth was very, uh, you know, because it expanded my interpretation of the word desire into three kinds. Because desire isn't necessarily just desire for sensual pleasures, but also for becoming enlightened, for getting rid of defilements. And this you can witness too with the Puto style. You can hear, you can listen to yourself wanting to get rid of anger or fear or guilt. You can listen to yourself wanting to get samadhi, get jhanas, get something that you read about in the scriptures, or maybe you had kind of blissful experiences in the past that you remember, you want to have them again. That's a, what we call bhavadhanha. Desire to get rid of defilements is Whippawadana. And what is it that's aware of dhanha, of desire? It's not desire. Desire can't be aware of itself. Can conditioned phenomena be aware of desire? Can, is it Ajahn Sumedho that's aware of desire? Or is it awareness, which is impersonal. It's not Ajahn Sumedho. Ajahn Sumedho is a name I've acquired. 
when awareness, conscious awareness, is here and now, and that's always been, no matter how confused or many mistakes I made in life, there is always conscious, consciousness, which is complete and perfect. So then you realize your true nature. I sometimes like to tell people they're perfect. And they all look shocked. Because so many of you expect me to tell you what's wrong with you. Like in a sangha of monks and nuns, you get, you know, you, what, who's, what's right and what's wrong. And, but when I tell them they're perfect, it's not that their conditions are perfect, because they're not. The nature of all conditions is change, imperfection, anicca, impermanence, anatta, not self, they're not person. They, they're just empty conditions changing according to other conditions. So as you keep investigating, reflecting in this way, because it's all there in the the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. You know, it's a kind of very simple, Four Noble Truths is not complicated. You know, if you try to study Abhidhamma, that's very complicated. Lists of names of all kinds of mental states. But Four Noble Truths, there's suffering, there's the cause of suffering, there's the end of suffering, and there's the way of non-suffering. So I've spoken long enough for now and open the remaining time for questions. was told there are some microphones available for people who want to ask questions, so please feel free to use them. like to introduce myself. I'm Rudy from Vancouver and would like to pay my respect to Lumpu Sumaitu that inspired me many years ago to two 10-day retreats in Santa Rosa teaching about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and taking refuge. Inspired life and thank you for coming back Lumpu. I'm happy to see you again. And otherwise, no questions. You're a very crazy image. <laughs> Getting old quick, Ajahn. <laughs> He's a gentleman from Vancouver. He just wants to say thank you for having attended a retreat in Santa Rosa a long time ago. Which Vancouver? Canada. Canada. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm going to Vancouver, Washington. Hello. Um, I was wondering if you'd be willing to elaborate more on, I've studied lots of different traditions and mostly I follow a yogic path, but one thing that keeps coming up is this concept of the ego. <laughs> and it seems like a lot of different systems and traditions, you've got the Jungian concept of an ego and the Freudian concept of an ego and the yogic concept of an ego. and I was wondering if you'd be willing to elaborate more on what, what you think of as the ego and what its, what its role is and, and how it comes to be created and, and just to, to speak more on that concept and that subject. Well, in, in uh, this tradition, Pali tradition, they go, they call it Sakya Ditti, and it's called a fetter. And it's a created sense of separateness. Like, I am this body, I'm so I'm separate from you, that's obvious, you're over there, I'm sitting here. And so the ego uh, identifies with the forms and uh, different traditions, religious traditions approach this and, you know, but the main thing, you know, like can get rid of the ego, it's not about getting rid of your ego, but understanding it. So, uh, you know, I, I, in the early years I wanted to get rid of the ego. I had this idea of it's something you had to get rid of. But it's not, it's not something you get rid of, it's something you, you understand and realize is, is just a, a, a convention. So when they say Ajahn Sumedho, I don't say there's no Ajahn Sumedho, I say yes. And, and uh, you know, so ultimately there's no Ajahn Sumedho, there's no ego. But, but uh, on a conventional level, it, you still function on that level, like in the Sangha life, you operate in the form that you've developed. So as a Theravada and Buddhist monk, Thai forest monk, and the, I still operate within those conventions, even though they're empty conventions, and, and uh, but they're, they're part of a way of, of uh, living the remainder of one's life, in the, in, within the physical form that's quite skillful. So in, you know, in, in, the, in American culture, like, the ego is most important thing. You know, so you're out of, a, you know, me and mine and what I think and my rights, my body, uh, I should, I have my rights and I should be respected and, and all these are ego. <clears throat> and of course, uh, you know, are they good or bad, right or wrong, but they are, they're not, they're not what you really are. You know, so we, you know, if I 
talk about freedom of speech to say whatever I think I'm saying. Um, as an ego, you know, and an American, I have a right to say whatever. I have freedom of speech. And uh, so it's my right to say anything that comes into my mind because there's freedom of speech. And so that's taking freedom of speech as a kind of personal right. Where in uh, monastic life, the important is right speech. So that takes mindfulness to use speech in the right way according to time and place. So then that takes wisdom and mindfulness to know when, when, what to say to, you know, to different groups of people or to personal friends or relatives. And that takes right speech, which to me is, makes life much more easy than if I just spilled out my immediate feelings on everybody around me. Being head of a monastery, you know, I realized I was in a very powerful position because everybody was looking at me and I, I could affect their moods just the, by what I said. A whole community amongst the nuns, I could affect their mood for the day just by what I say. And so, uh, you know, I began to see that, you know, like just being in a bad mood and dumping my bad mood on, uh, on a community, that would affect the whole community. So in, in practice, then being aware of a bad mood is like this, I was careful not to, what I said, you know, I wasn't going to grumble or blame people just because I was in a bad mood. So, you know, it takes wisdom, discernment, in life, in mindfulness, to, to live like in, in the basic uh, kind of teachings of Theravada is like the, it's based on generosity and morality. So five precepts and dana, which means generosity. So these lead toward a happy life is if you know, if you're living within the structure of the five precepts and you're, you're not stingy and selfish, you're generous, you're going to be a lot happier as a separate individual. But then still that happiness is relative because growing old is like this and as you grow old you see your parents die, your teachers die. In the past year I've had to see so many friends of mine die because of old age and this is the way it is. And that, you know, this doesn't make you happy, but when the death of somebody who you, who your friends or supporters, it feels like this. So aware of grief, of sadness, rather than indulging in, in my personal feelings of sadness and that, that I might do if I didn't know or I didn't have wisdom to guide me. Does that answer your question? I guess it, it wasn't really a question. I was just curious what your perspective was on that particular topic and you shared it, so thank you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> that was a good question. 
long point. Uh, as you were talking, you're, you're saying, or you're talking about this body and how we identify with this body and, and all that after we die, this, this consciousness, this awareness is, will be in space. It's, I, I, it gets, made me wonder, what's the value of the body? It sounds like it's just something that we identify with that, we, uh, that leads to suffering. Is there, and I, don't, I guess I don't have to dwell on that too much because here I am, but uh, I'm curious what you would have to say about that. The body's just empty phenomena. <laughs> it's worthless. Thank you. <laughs> and it, you know, I, I recently made a video recording of Buddhist angels. And so this is about old age, sickness and death. And these are the Buddhist angels. So, you know, when I was, when I was a Samanera, a, a novice monk, uh, a Thai monk asked me, what about Christian angels? He said, what do they look like? And so I described, they're all beautiful and white and with white wings and play harps and sing beautiful songs. And then I, I asked him, what are Buddhist angels like? And he said, old age sickness and death. <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. Because <laughs> that really stuck home that, that, that you know, these, uh, see them as teachers. Like old age is teaching me about old age. This aging body, this, dimming sight and deafness is teaching. You know, it's like this. Old age is like the body is, that's what it's supposed to do, get old. And his senses aren't sharp anymore and so forth. That's the way it is. So if I take it personally, I'd suffer. But if, uh, if I see it in terms of an old body's teaching me about aging, about a condition that's old and time to to die, you know, it's getting ready to pack up. And it's like this. But what doesn't die? You know, because consciousness is still bright, luminous. But the body is certainly not bright and luminous. But see, your body is just food, really, and it's a good way to reflect, to deal with vanity. Because <laughs> we think it's, we take it so personally. You know, what I, how do I appear? And, uh, you know, one can feel so offended if somebody insult your appearance <laughs> and, so, and all this is teaching you know like being insulted teaches me about ins you know because the ego 
the conditioned sense of self doesn't like criticism. And that's the way it is. It's not that I'm, I like criticism personally, but life is, you know, the thinking mind's a critical function. It's based on right and wrong, good and bad. It's so it's, you know, it's, a, it's about what's right, what's wrong, what's hev about heaven and hell, male and female. It's all opposites, one against the other. And, and so you can't have heaven without hell, right without wrong, good without bad, because that's the whole thinking process, is, is, a, is this, this kind of judging, discriminating about phenomena, or about ideas or beliefs. And, uh, and you, know, you know, on the, the conventional level, there's right and wrong, but on ultimate level, there's no right and wrong. So what are you going to identify with? The conventions, the conditions that are always right or wrong, or begin to see your true nature is transcending right and wrong, good and bad. And that's enlightenment, that's what we, that's a realization, not a belief. If you trust this practice, that's what you realize. But it, it is, you know, the ego, the sense of a separate self is so strong. So, you know, it's conditioned from when you were a very innocent little child, where you just absorb anything, you know, what your mother says, father says, you know, your little, little children, like, in, are innocent, they don't have wisdom to discriminate. They just take on what they're told. And that's like prejudices and, and religious beliefs and all these things are conditioned into people from, from childhood. And, and then, uh, you know, so you, you develop a sense of right and wrong, good and bad, according to how you've been conditioned. Like, it's interesting, teaching Dhamma in a Baptist church. <laughs> I, I didn't, thought that, didn't think that would ever happen to me. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, like, Dhamma doesn't discriminate. It has no discriminatory powers. Dhamma or conscious awareness doesn't discriminate. Where the thinking mind discriminates, this is right, this is red, this is blue, and, and uh, this is a Baptist church, and I'm a Buddhist monk, and these are uh, names we give to objects. And, uh, and we think some are better than others. We think we have beliefs uh, about some religions are better than other religions, or some races are superior to other races, and, and some views are better than other views, and, and on and on like that. So we live in a world about 
what's better, what, what people, individual people believe is better or the best, or what isn't. So that's why there's so much disagreement and problems because, you know, like the Ukraine war now, you know, does Ukraine, you know, where does it belong? In NATO, in the European Union, or in Russia? <laughs> so, you know, then these are words, these are names. Does, does the land itself, Ukraine, really say it's Ukraine? No, it's, it's uh, Ukrainians. Yeah, this is Ukraine, that's Russia. So, that's, uh, you know, that's the conventional reality. This is Seattle, this is a word given to this area. So, uh, you know, but in ultimate terms, Seattle is just a name given by human beings to, to an area, a piece of land. And then we form views, we, we, we can have strong views about what's right for Seattle and what's wrong. There's still, you know, conditions can be right or wrong, good or bad. But ultimate reality is not good or bad, right or wrong. It's where good and bad, right and wrong cease. Where suffering ceases. And is always here and now in conscious awareness. Does that answer your question? Thank you, yes. yes. Hello. Um, I, uh, in the United States and Europe and a lot of Western countries, the practice of looking inward or maybe a spiritual practice or religious practice is becoming, is severely dwindled among the youth uh, just the numbers of percentages of people actively participating in a spiritual path has plummeted, especially in the last uh, 20, 25 years. Um, and I was curious if you had thoughts on that or how possibly Buddhism could reach out more to the youth in, um, in uh, Western culture. I heard you loud and clear. You have a strong voice. Well, I, I have no opinions on the, on the matter at all, really, because, like, when I became interested in Buddhism in 19, it was 1955, nobody I knew had any interest in Buddhism and thought I was a bit odd. So I didn't tell anyone as a Buddhist because I knew their reaction would be, you know, would be critical. Because Buddhism was just some religion in Asia and it's not American and that kind of thing. So then in uh, Bay Area at that time, 1950s, you know, it was uh, the beatnik 
beat Zen and all that. There was, there's a lot of interest in a kind of, about of youth in that kind of, in Zen Buddhism, because it was Zen as a real challenge to the intellectual mind. You know, you you try to figure it out intellectually and and uh, like you you know when you tend to start taking an interest in something like Zen Buddhism, it challenges your intellect, which is very fixed into right and wrong, good and bad, fixations of extremities, absolutizing. And, uh, and that's what attracted me to Buddhism, was it, it was challenging these very fixed uh, uh, attitudes, opinions that I had at that age. I was 21 at the time, so, you know, and I knew something was wrong, that I was kind of stuck in just the rigidity of a mind that thought in very simple right and wrong ways. And, uh, and the beatnik uh, movement was kind of relief, kind of a challenge for, for all these kind of white middle class rigidity that I was brought up with. So uh, I liked that, you know, so I took an interest and, but I didn't really, and so I, I tried to, and, but nobody else was interested. And then when I joined the Peace Corps in 1963, I was training in Hawaii and uh, they had a Zen, uh, some kind of expert on Zen Buddhism come from the uh, University of Hawaii to talk to our Peace Corps training group. And I just found what he was saying utterly fascinating. But nobody else could understand what he was talking about. And we were all young. I was the oldest person in the training group. And then, then uh, I was, addicted to Krishnamurti when I was a graduate student. And Krishnamurti was always challenging, you know, one's perceptions. So then, uh, you know, so I just thought this was uh, kind of one of my peculiar tendencies that, you know, I didn't really talk about because nobody else seemed interested. And now everybody's interested. Or so many people are interested. Then going to England, it was uh, 1977, and uh, we lived in London for two years, and uh, mindfulness was certainly common enough word, but it wasn't given much importance. There was so much in the Buddhist circles, Buddhist society, and so forth in London about samadhi, concentration, and uh, so much emphasis on s Tibetan and Zen and Theravada and you know the Buddhist society was was an umbrella kind of Buddhist organization but there was so much identity with being Tibetan or Theravada or Zen and so then uh, you know there was you know there seemed to be you know very strong views you know, that people had about these different traditions. And so, uh, 
you know, but now in England, you know, mindfulness is, is suddenly, you know, the, very fashionable. There's, you know, in YouTube, there's all kinds of mindfulness teaching. And, and uh, you know, I see it as a, as a good thing because it needs to be brought into people's consciousness what it is. You know, because just the, just the word itself, just, is it just, like I was saying before, just mindfulness of objects, is that it? You know, because that's we're all trained to do. You know, when you're a little boy, your mother says, be mindful when you cross the street. You know, so, you, you know, you're the, the sending your consciousness out through the senses is very much a part of cultural conditioning. And that's what we regard, regard as the real world. I go out to this body, that's me. I can see this body. I can't see my own face. I have to look in a mirror. I can't see my own eyes, but they can see you, and you can see my eyes, but I can't see them. So, you know, it's like, what is it that, that knows, that doesn't have opinions and views, that's just aware of the way it is? that's aware of consciousness. And this is, this is increasingly interesting to people of every age, and young people included. When people find out, you know, that, that, that mention of Buddhism about bec not becoming a Buddhist or converting your religion or wearing robes, but about awakening, you know, learning, learning to trust something very pure and real in each individual human being. You know, then it, and that attracts people. But young people are, you know, the, you know, I haven't, because I'm old and different generation, and so young people are brought up with internet and iPhones and and all this, so the, their conditioning is very different from mine. And I know I'm not really aware of how that affects them, but it seems like you know people walk around with their iPhones all the time, and, and you get on the London train and everybody is glued to their iPads, or and, and so you know I. That can be good because on internet you get all these these teachings on you know on YouTube and various uh, other programs that you can get and that's available to anyone. Where well, in 1955, when I became interested in Japanese Zen Buddhism, you know I couldn't hardly find any books available in English. There was D.T. Suzuki, who they were publishing, republishing D.T. Suzuki's works, and Alan Watts' Way of Zen. And uh, then Evan Wentz on B Tibetan Buddhism, these were the only books available that I could find. And uh, now there's, you know, publishing, there's so many books 
on mindfulness, on Buddhism, different forms of Buddhism. That, uh, and then the internet and the YouTube and, and on and on like that. There's so many retreats available and, and then there's uh, all these were not available 50 years ago. So, uh, you know, we can, some monks criticize modern trends, but I don't, I have great, I, I just feel it's the introduction of the word mindfulness and conscious awareness is a very important thing to bring into people's conscious awareness because they're common enough words. They're not like exotic poly words or Sanskrit words, or, but they're, they're so common they can just be kind of ignored and not understood very well. So, you know, like the, you know, America is, you notice it's the ego is very strong, you know, this sense of separateness, personal, personalized self is very, very powerful. And uh, in Thailand, it's not so powerful. They're more identified with family, with, with a village and things like that. So their personal identity has is more embracing groups where, you know, I was brought up to, as an American, you know, I'm, I'm independent, I have rights, and I, what I think people should respect me for what I am. I'm, I've been through all that. But, but, and I see how difficult it is, you know, in, to, to get a view of that, not, not to criticize it, but to see it is conditioned view that creates suffering because you're always emphasizing your personality, your conditioned self-view on everybody else, you know, that everybody else should respect what you think you are and, and uh, you know, ideally, that's an ideal, but when you realize what you really, then you have more compassion for people's tendencies to identify with things. But if you, you know, if you don't, then like all these uh, sexual identities, you know, people have strong views about whether they're sinful or right or they should be respected. You know, so there's all kinds of views going around uh, the media. You know, like the, the evangelicals feel that all these sexual identities are evil that's a view. That's not the way things are. But that's a, a view that they, they have that they're very much fixed on. They, they can't see it as a view. Like we might have that view ourselves, but you know, with mindfulness, you can be aware it is really a viewpoint, not ultimately real or true. And then for elderly people, you know, it's uh, 
great blessing to be mindful because, as I was saying, old age is, is uh, not what you want. <laughs> and, and then, uh, but it's like this. And so, you know, you, you find an inner peace, an inner contentment with the way it is rather than grumble and complain and want to die and feel disrespect that people don't. You know, like being a, <clears throat> when I retired from being the head monk of Amravati in 1976, no, 19, 2010, 2010, I retired from my position and went to live in Thailand where I lived at a monastery where I was a kind of resident retired monk, an elderly monk. And, uh, you know, my whole, the past 20 years I'd been in leadership positions as a head monk and abbot of a monastery, a monastic community, then just being a kind of resident old retired monk was like this. <laughs> But, the, you know, the memories of being in charge and making decisions were still, would come up, you know, but, but I had the ability to observe that this is, you know, the, this is just karmic conditioning that I don't attach to. So it, it, it led to increasing contentment. So contentment, as the English poet Blake said, is heaven itself. And the monastic form, this particular uh, samana style of living is about contentment. You know, the whole aim is to be content, being an alms mendicant and, and living within, you know, uh, with handling no money, not having money, not having sexual activities uh, and being content. And of course, you know, this is, uh, and the whole na structure, nature of conditioning is discontentment. You know, like an American are never content with, with anything. It's about how it could be better. But in training as a Buddhist monk with Lung Po Chai, it was always, you know, the life was very simple there, but it, uh, You know, but it, you know, being brought up in, in kind of middle-class Seattle, you know, your, your perceptions, your expectations are much higher than what was available there. It's a very kind of basic, primitive life. But then the idea of contentment with what is offered, the food you have in your alms bowl, with the robes that are provided for you, and so you're not always content with it, but you can be aware of discontent. So like learning to eat uh, Northeast Thai food is very different from Bangkok Thai food or Thai food you get in American restaurants. And, you know, I was discontent with it. But 
I could observe that. You know, then I always reflected that that this was presented by people, you know, who had faith. Very generous people were supporting me with food so I could meditate, so I could develop the monastic form. So I developed a sense of gratitude to all the people that providing the the robes, the shelter, the food, the medicines, you know, which is like contentment and gratitude are very pure kind of mental states, restful and pleasant to abide in. So, you know, you, in, in monastic chanting, you chant about, you know, being content with what is offered. And, uh, And so just as an ego trying to be contented as a person, I couldn't do it. You know, I said I should be content and I shouldn't be complaining or grumbling about the food. I shouldn't be like, I should be content. So then I feel guilty. You know, I feel guilty if I started complaining about the food and, and complaining about the life. Then I feel guilty because I shouldn't. And just observing what I actually felt. The ideal of contentment was there like a guiding star, you know, it's directing you towards something, but you can't, as a person, as an ego, make yourself content just at willpower, because the ego is never content. It doesn't know contentment. It doesn't know love. You know, it. It, we talk about all the time about love, and uh, but you know what is love really, and uh, and so you know we fall in love with people, but then we expect all kinds of things from them, and uh, is that love, you know, or is that ego, you know? So it's learning to to know what ego is. And then seeing the suffering, being attached to the ego, being attached to discontentment and ingratitude leads to suffering, it's miserable. To spend your life as a Buddhist monk grumbling about everything or criticizing the teacher or, or liking this monk and not liking that monk and on and on like that, you know, you're, you're discriminatory abilities function in the Sangha just as well as in lay life. And, uh, you know, so you, you know, you, you, you can't help but like some individuals more than others. You know, that's just the way things are. Some people are more agreeable to, you, to me than others, but that's not attachment. You see it as just a passing condition going through consciousness and it ceases. So then, you know, you can describe mindfulness awareness as universal love, unconditioned love. Because conscious awareness doesn't hate anybody, doesn't punish or judge. It doesn't judge anybody. So it's total compassion, total metta or loving kindness is natural, you know, it's not a created kind of state of being nice and kind and good 
as an ego might like to be. But it's natural to Dhamma. It's the Dhamma that we, we take refuge in. Thank you. Good afternoon, uh, Venerable Sir. Very pleased to meet you. My name is John, I'm from Seattle, and um, a few of my spiritual friends, uh, what's the Pali word, Kalyanamitas? Um, they've been uh, discussing, or the ones who have been to monasteries have been telling me uh, to get to a monastery for a few days, maybe a couple of weeks if I can. And uh, I feel that I do really want to um, experience that level of meditation and renunciation and just kind of uh, see what happens when I come back from that. Uh, I have some responsibilities here and I, uh, I don't know, with my human mind, I. Uh, uh, have a tendency to procrastinate and um, put off what's most important. So I was wondering uh, if I could find some motivation by asking you, uh, how urgent is it to get to a monastery for a couple of weeks? You should go right away. What's that? I'm hard of hearing. Right away. That's. That's what I figured the answer would be. Thank you, sir. What do you expect me to say? <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't really a surprise answer, I'll say that. <laughs> no, well... Mindfulness doesn't depend on monasteries. And so it's like being aware of the way it is uh, is available every moment. You know, so I, I was... Uh, I've always been attracted to monasticism. Even as a Christian I was attracted to monastics, monasteries and as a... You know, you can see it as my kind of accumulated virtues, my barme, my, you know, past lives. There's all ways of explaining it, but I don't know. It's just the way it is. So, you know, in Thailand, I didn't know what there, anything about Thailand when I went there. And, but I knew it was a Theravadan country and I, I didn't know that much about Theravada Buddhism. But uh, I liked Thailand very much the minute I entered the country and uh, you know, and it's a Buddhist country and as soon as you cross the border from Malaysia and you start seeing Buddhist temples and Buddhist monks and, and I just felt this incredible attraction towards these kind of images and uh, so I gravitated, you know, when I left the Peace Corps, my main interest was in meditating. 
because I didn't have any other ambitions, worldly ambitions. I didn't, you know, I was fed up with the, what had become of me at the age of 30. You know, so I, you know, was planning to go to Japan and ordain as a Zen monk. But in the Navy, when I was in Japan in the wintertime, it was very cold. And, and I remember that some information about Zen monasteries don't have central heating. <laughs> and, and in Thailand, nice warm country. <laughs> so, so, so I thought maybe I'll try out the Thai system. <laughs> and, and then I, I met a, a, a German hippie who told me about Vipassana meditation in Bangkok at Wat Mahathat, one of the main temples in old, old Bangkok. So I had a kind of address to go to as I went, went to Bangkok and went to this Wat Mahathat and asked to take meditation instructions there. That was the beginning. But as a lay person, now there's so much available and from my own insight, you know, how many people can really ordain as monks or nuns? Not many really interested in that. So if I say you have to ordain as a monk, that's just an opinion, isn't it? That's what it is at this moment. And then it's up to you to find out. And you tell me what it's like being a lay person, <laughs> meditating. Because I haven't been a lay person for years. So I, I can learn from you about lay meditation. But, you know, in, in, uh, in monastic form, I can, you know, that's what I'm used to. That's how I've lived for the past 56 years. So I feel quite confident speaking from, from this position. But, the, you know, mindfulness is the main thing, not the, not the, whether you're a lay person or a monk or a nun. Because just being a monk, it doesn't get you anywhere. You know, if you're just attached to forms, then you can be just as vain and that as a monk or nun as you can as a lay person. You know, if you just, am I as pure, you know, my binai is better than yours and that kind of thing. And, you know, you can get, you know, you get, in Thailand they give you royal titles and things like that. That can mean, you know, make you feel, the ego likes that kind of thing very much. But in terms of, and in Thailand you get a lot of respect, just being a monk. And so, you know, for, you can just take it for granted that you should be respected and uh, then be offended. Like coming to live in, in the UK, you know, I was, 
you know, living in Thailand for the first 11, 12 years, you know, I was used to be, you know, especially Western monks get a lot of attention, a lot of respect. And, uh, and in England, I was just an odd person on the street. <laughs> the English are very polite, so they don't, you know, they kind of just look away. <laughs> when you go to European countries and they start insulting you. <laughs> and then when they're talking about insults and criticisms, use it all as learning, you know, about the ego, is what it, how it happens, and, you know, we, resenting being insulted, called skinhead, or at best you get called Hare Krishna. <laughs> and I didn't mind that, but the skinhead and, and uh, other derogatory terms, you know, make fun of you. You don't get that in Thailand. But in terms of mindfulness, it doesn't matter. You can start assuming in Thailand that you deserve their respect. You can become very arrogant because you're, you're being respected so much. So it's, everything's a test. If you learn from every, the way you are, like the way you, your peculiarities, your idiosyncrasies and all that, your hang-ups, you learn from them. They are the way they are. It's not a matter of right or wrong, but observing, being the puto rather than the owner of these conditions. Being the witness. Trust that. And then you just learn from life, about relationships with others, with family, with colleagues and on and on like that. You, if you're willing to learn from the experience within this limited form. So what are you going to do? <laughs> I'm going to go to the monastery right now. <laughs> well, that, that answers it. Uh, that answers my question very beautifully. Thank you, Vener Venerable Sir. There's only about five minutes left on the clock, although it's not that particular, but maybe we can make one last question. I hope this is a five-minute question. <laughs> Um, thank you very much for your example of renunciation in the modern life. Um, for you, Longpur, and everyone here in robes, it's something that I find deeply moving, and I have a huge amount of respect for um, the traditions of monasticism, and I think that's largely responsible for us being able to have Buddhism today. Um, so it's from within that very deep respect um, that I ask for any thoughts you would be willing to share or interested to share on 
um, the resurgence of uh, females entering the monastic sangha in the Thai forest tradition. And any thoughts on that? Well, the practice is available to everyone, like the Dhamma is freely given. And it's up to the individual to, to make the best of the conditions they find themselves in. So, you know, there's Buddhist nuns in the, you know, there's in the Theravada tradition, the bhikkhuni order has died out a long time ago, so there's no, you know, to, nobody knows how to revive it, and uh, it's a very contentious subject in Thailand. But then there are bhikkhunis, Theravada bhikkhunis here in America, so, uh, you know, support them because they're trying their best to develop a bhikkhuni order. But this is, a, this is a very, you know, it's a very conservative tradition. So, you know, the tradition itself is 2,565 years old. So, you know, it's survived through uh, all kinds of, you know, being flourishing and spreading everywhere to almost disappearing. But my encouragement is to, is to not make monastic life so, so strongly identified with the ego, that to uh, learn to be content with what is available, is my advice. So, you know, whether they can establish the Theravada, re-establish the bhikkhuni order. You know, I, you can't, nobody knows how to do that. It's just not, not uh, a way that, that people think or feel in, in Theravadan countries. So, uh, and that's the way it is. But women that want to live in that style should be respected and supported. So in, uh, and then in England I've established the Siladhara order, 10 precept order, which seems to be acceptable in Thailand. And so that, that's all I could do as a Theravadan bhikkhu. To stay, you know, because one is, you know, the tradition, the Thai forest tradition is uh, something I have immense gratitude for. So, you know, I live within the, the, the rules and limitations of that particular form.
but also, you know, the point of the Buddhist teaching is to, is not about becoming, but about realizing your true nature, which is awareness itself. It's not bhikkhu, bhikkhuni, siladhara, samana, lay person. These are identities that we adopt, or maybe conventions. But when clung to, then they become causes for dissension and anger and resentment. So it's more important to, you know, like to trust your awareness to be aware of how you feel about it. How do you feel about women in Theravada Buddhism? It's like this. You know, this is to, you know, so it's not whether it's right or wrong, it's up to personal views, personal opinions. But you know how you feel about women in the Theravada tradition, Western women, American women within the Theravada tradition, and, you know, whatever you feel about that is like this. And so you're, you're opening yourself to what you're feeling, how you've been conditioned to, to feel, to these perceptions, it's like this. And, you know, then this is the, the path of liberation. We're trying to set Theravada Buddhism into a, a context of modern American values and human rights and on and on like that. It's, you know, it's, that's, you, you know, it's an ancient tradition and it, it doesn't, it's not open to, to kind of change that much. It adapts itself, but it's very, you know, like the Vinaya uh, is a lot of the rules don't apply to anything in the present time. We still recite them because the tradition has done that for 2,500 years. So traditions are like this. This was established in India 2,565 years ago. So it, it, it really hasn't, you know, it's kind of kept a constant uh, training position within that, within the changes of, you know, so, in, in, you know, you have Mahayana Buddhism in China and Tibetan Buddhism. So the forms change according to culture and adapt themselves. But Theravada is, you know, is kind of the original, more like the original Indian form. And uh, it's pretty strict and, and, and fixed in its way of of, of, uh, of its forms, but in its teaching, it's universal. So like to see, you know, that to have views about women in Theravada is about, you know, be aware of whatever your view is, however your emotion or feeling is, it is the way it is. I can't, you know, say it's right or wrong, it's, but your, your, your wisdom faculty will be aware it is 
a condition that arises and ceases. And that's the path. That'll get you to the end of suffering. Thank you. Checking? Okay. <laughs> so, um, traditionally, uh, we, we're going to forego any sort of large ceremony, but it's traditional after a Dhamma talk for those who want to express their gratitude um, to express it by uh, saying sadhu three times. Um, so before we do that, those who want to are welcome to um, bow three times or simply raise your hands to your head if you wish, if you'd like. Handamayam damakatayu sadhu karang dadamase sadhu 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 Anumodami. And Longpore, on behalf of those here, um, can I also request a blessing? My voice is not very good anymore. Ititang baditang dum hangipame wasamichatu sape burentu sangapa janto banaraso yata manicho di raso yata sapiti o we watchantu saparoko inasatumate pawat Vantarayo sukitikayuko bhava amivadhanasili sanitang vatapachayino jataro damavadhanti ayukvano sukhang palang. Well, thank you all for being here. Thank you, Ajahn Sumedho, for being here. I'm so appreciative. And if we can let Ajahn leave first, and then we will all part afterwards. Thank you all for being here. <laughs>